The world watches as the trial of police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd begins, and authorities in Minneapolis prepare for the possibility of mass protest and rebellion if George Floyd's killer is allowed to walk free. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's March 9th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We can do this with you, but not without you. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out the show, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, today we're going to discuss the opening of the trial of Derek Chauvin in the case of George Floyd's murder, intense political and military maneuvering ahead of the potential withdrawal of U.S. troops from the endless war in Afghanistan, the racist roots of the so-called criminal justice system in the United States, and more. But first, I know we want to talk about what's been going on in Congress and in Washington with the minimum wage being left out of the stimulus package. Right. The stimulus package is being heralded as the most progressive piece of legislation in a half a century. There's going to be more money for child credit for low-income and working-class people Okay, we understand that. But what's not in the new package was the increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. As a matter of fact, the minimum wage is not increased at all. And when you think of what's happened in the last 50 years, why one out of every two people in the United States is living either in poverty or near poverty, the real problem is low wages. We have low wages. We have significantly low wages in a country where everything else is commodified. You have to pay for everything, including healthcare, which certainly in the other advanced industrial capitalist countries, healthcare is either free or very affordable. Same with housing. So people who have less money can afford fewer things, including the basics. The federal minimum wage was last raised on July 24th 2009. That's 12 years ago, or going to be 12 years in July. At that time, it rose from $6.55 an hour to $7.25 an hour. The last step of a three-step increase approved by Congress in 2007. Before 2007, the minimum wage had been stuck for 10 years at $5.15 an hour. Now, remember, everyone, prices keep going up and up. They don't stop increasing. In the year 1968, the United States minimum wage was $1.60. That sounds pretty low. But the equivalent in 2021 dollars would be $12.29. Now, remember, the minimum wage today 
is $7.25. If it was the same in 2021 dollars as it was in 1968, that would require that the minimum wage be $12.29. If we went back to 1968 levels of minimum wage, low income, impoverishment wages, slave wages, American workers would be as poor as they were in 1968, but instead they're poorer. And 1968 is noteworthy because that's when Dr. King inaugurated the Poor People's March in occupation of Washington, D.C. to overcome low wages and poverty. Using 1968 as our benchmark for the minimum wage implies that low-wage workers today should be making just as much as low-wage workers were making 53 years ago. Can you imagine Americans of 1968 settling for a minimum wage standard of living that had been set 53 years earlier based on 1915 standards or 53 years before that? That would be 1873 standards. At some point, we should expect low-wage workers to actually start living better than they did in 1968 or 1915, or 1873. But that's capitalism. That's U.S. capitalism. And that's why people have to organize and fight. They have to mobilize. They have to build a movement. They have to have unions that fight. We have to have unions that actually fight for the rights of all workers. The progressive forces in Congress had tremendous leverage. When I say the progressive forces, I mean the liberals, the social democrats, small in number, true. But they had tremendous leverage in Congress because the democrats, because they have a slim majority in the House of Representatives, they can't lose more than four votes. If those liberal or social democrats had put their foot down and said, look, we're not going to vote yes to this bill, without the minimum wage being included, the bill would not pass. Now, that would be a heavy responsibility because obviously parts of this new bill are very significant for lots of people who are suffering right now. But if people don't fight, if they don't organize, if they don't mobilize, if they don't really take a stand, the minimum wage is going to be where it is, lower than it was in 1968 for a long, long time. And when we talk about the government has to do something about poverty, well, the government is doing something about poverty. It's increasing poverty by not raising the minimum wage. I mean, when does it stop? When does the fight start? It's not just members, liberal members in Congress. I don't think there's any reason to single them out. Where were the unions? I mean, there are millions of workers in organized labor. Why weren't the unions in the streets in the past weeks? I mean, the unions donate huge amounts of money to Democratic Party candidates, but the labor movement has to be a fighting labor movement. The left has to be a fighting left. It has to be a movement of the people that's in the streets fighting for radical change. And if we don't do that, let's not be surprised then that the minimum wage continues in real dollars to go down and down and down, lower than it was in 1968. It's lower than that today in 2021, and that will be true in 2022. Anyway, we're going to keep talking about the minimum wage and the needs for the working class to fight. And the purpose of our show 
is to provide information and analysis about what's going on in the country and about people fighting back so that we can fight back. We are not providing information for information's sake alone. We're building a movement. That's what we're trying to do. Brian, there's a couple of really important facts that I think are really relevant here. The people of Florida, one of the most conservative states in this country, the people voted in a ballot measure for a $15 minimum wage after a decade of struggle of unions, of workers, of organizations in Florida. They won that. The people voted that in, not the legislators. Not to mention the fact that the vast majority of the country, when polled, actually wants a minimum wage increase. Of course, why wouldn't people want a minimum wage increase? It's essentially saying, don't give me a handout. Give me a fair wage. I mean, $15 isn't even that much, but give me something closer to a fair wage for all of the work that I put in. I mean, this just really shows like, what's the problem with the system when the majority of people in a country want something? And not only will one of the mainstream parties not vote for it in its entirety, but the other mainstream party can't even unite behind it. Yeah, the moderate, so-called moderate millionaires like Joe Manchin, they always call them moderates and centrists. But when you deprive low-wage workers of an increase, when you keep them in poverty, I don't think that's moderate. Moderate sounds kind of good. Centrist sounds kind of mm, reasonable. Well, it's not reasonable. It's not good. It's an extremist position on the part of the millionaires in Congress to deprive workers of what workers need to actually live. Anyway, we'll keep talking about this in the coming days. Also, just for our audience, we have a great week lined up. We're going to be talking about the relief package, so-called, with economist Richard Wolf in our segment that runs tomorrow. And then on Thursday, talking about tactics and strategies, I'm going to review some of the key debates and controversies among the socialist left and within the U.S. anti-war movement over how to fight not only for social justice at home, but against imperialism, and of course, the U.S. being the center of world imperialism, how we fight is all important. So we're going to devote Thursday's segment of The Real Story to some of those debates and controversies of the past 20 or 30 years. Anyway, we have a lot going forward. Again, we ask all of those who are valuing this show uh, become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. If you like the programming, if you rely on it, uh, become part of it. Become a subscriber. We can't do it without you. Let's turn to Minneapolis. Let's get started. Nicole, Esther, Walter, Derek Chauvin's trial. The stakes here couldn't be higher. They absolutely couldn't be higher. And hundreds, maybe thousands of people were in the streets yesterday at the start of the trial. Um, They started jury selection yesterday, which is probably going to take several weeks. But there were family members of people who had been killed, assaulted by police from all around, from the state of Minnesota, from other places as well, who came out to demand justice for George Floyd. And so many people talked about it, you know, and listening to some of the protests that happened yesterday, so many people talked about it as what I think is exactly right. It's not, the trial isn't just about George Floyd's family getting justice, although it is absolutely that, you know, whatever justice they can get at this point, now that George Floyd has been brutally murdered. It's about getting justice for all of the families, families who who haven't had any charges in their case, families whose the name of their loved ones isn't painted in murals. You know, there aren't charges at all. The cop is maybe still even working, is still employed, still getting promoted. This is such a huge turning point for people that, you know, the summer of rebellion 
was able to you know, make this man even get arrested. Derek Chauvin wasn't even arrested when he knelt on George Floyd's neck with his hand casually on his leg, just sitting there, you know, slowly choking and killing George Floyd. I want to play a clip of Kim Handy Jones, Kimberly Handy Jones, her her son, Cordale Handy, was killed by St. Paul police, St. Paul, Minnesota police on March 15th, 2017. She was at yesterday's rally at the courthouse, and she's been a really strong and powerful spokesperson for several years since 2017. She lives in Chicago, but she regularly travels to Minnesota to try and seek justice for her son, Cordale. Here we go. And understand that George Floyd is the face of thousands that have went on before him, some after him, but his tragedy allowed us to see just what they did to our sons and daughters and loved ones when the camera one fucking video. You need to understand that. So if George incident of police brutality opens up the floodgates of justice, then hell, I'm standing on it. I'm standing on the promise of God, people. I'm standing on God's promise. And I'm going to tell you all something. I'm looking at my black sisters and brothers, my sons and daughters, mothers and fathers. Don't be moved. Don't get divided. We're going to stick. We're going to stay. And we're going to march on the fucking victory. Justice delayed. If we stick and stay, won't be justice denied. And we need justice, people, by any means necessary. That was Kimberly Handy Jones, such an incredible speaker. And there were so many people there yesterday whose family members had been killed or assaulted by police, by people just like Derek Chauvin, by cops just like Derek Chauvin. And Derek Chauvin is finally on trial. So the jury selection started yesterday. And, you know, one thing we know for sure right now is that a jury will eventually hear the evidence presented by the prosecutor against Derek Chauvin. Will it be two charges or three charges? Will one of the charges include third degree murder? There's a lot we don't yet know, but there's a lot of things we do know. And we do know that he's on trial. We do know that he's facing second degree murder right now. And we do know that people feel a sense of justice by the fact that they were able to secure this trial in the first place. Esther, one other thing we know is that if Derek Chauvin is not convicted, this could very likely be like what happened in Los Angeles in 1992. Absolutely. And, you know, just hearing that mother speak very powerfully about her son and the murder, you know, of all those whose names are not known by the public, they're not in the headlines. You know, it reminds us that when police kill black men, black boys, black people, it's not considered a crime. Just like when the police beat Rodney King on video, they didn't know they were being taped, but everyone saw it the brutal beating of several police officers standing around him, repeatedly beating, tasing, kicking him. And a jury acquitted all those officers. You know, a Los Angeles erupted. And because people are not going to be told time and time again not to believe their lying eyes, you know, not to believe that they didn't see what they saw and that actually they're being asked to not consider the person a human being. They're not going to accept a jury's denial of someone's humanity. Esther, one thing is that George Floyd, like so many, so many people, especially in the black community, was arrested over and over and over again. It had this huge impact on his life. 
he moved to Minneapolis to try to, you know, start afresh. But when we think about what happened to George Floyd or the fact that 2.3 million people are in prison, very few of them, almost none are are police officers who execute people, but it's working class people, it's poor people. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the prisoners. I was looking this morning, the U.S. has 4% of the women in the world live in the United States, but 30%, almost one out of every three women who is incarcerated in the world is incarcerated in the United States. And we saw this other statistics that one out of seven prisoners in the United States is serving a life sentence, and two-thirds of those are African-American people. Let's just talk a little bit about what this system actually means, what it is. Let's call it by its right name. Absolutely. So the start of Derek Chauvin's trial connects with that headline that you mentioned. And so a new study from the Sentencing Project reveals that more than 200,000 people across the United States are serving life sentences in prison. And that translates into one in seven people in prison serving a life sentence, one in five black men in prison serving a life sentence. And two thirds of these life sentences are held by people of color. And so both of these stories, you know, about this trial of Derek Chauvin and also this study, you know, connects for me because they remind me that in this country, the economics of racist policing, the courts and prisons has provided generations of men, mainly white men like Derek Chauvin, with employment and jobs. And their primary role in society, their job has been to funnel black men and boys into prisons and as prisoners, the legal status, the human status of these men and boys and more and more women is instantly changed into that of a slave. And we know that because the 13th Amendment, which was passed outlawing slavery, exempted anyone who was convicted of a crime and imprisoned. And so there's a link between the murder of George Floyd stemming from his arrest on false suspicion of passing a bad check to the way that black men are and have been fed into a policing court and prison system as a source of free and cheap labor. So today's U.S. prison labor system, which also exists in Minnesota, is just a vestige of what was an entrenched system spanning more than 80 years from the Emancipation Proclamation up into the 1940s, where in southern states, black men were routinely imprisoned on flimsy charges and funneled by the state through something called a convict leasing program into private industries. And in those industries, they worked in often very dangerous and filthy conditions and often died or were murdered. So up to a million Black people were forced into some sort of slavery on trumped-up charges. They were in these peonage schemes, you know, charging you know, men, women, and children with debt and sharecropping schemes. There are all types of schemes, including just straight up kidnapping people and forcing them to work. So in the documentary, Slavery by Another Name, historians Adam Green, James Grossman, and Khalil Muhammad described how Black people were roped back into a system of slavery. We'll go to the first clip. Convict leasing becomes a new form of economic development in the South and a ubiquitous form of punishment uh, for Southerners as the criminal justice system expanded itself. And sweeps would take place all throughout the South, whether it was for a dice game, whether it was for an altercation, whether it was for being mouthy or uppity. The record of thousands upon thousands of people arrested in this way 
is everywhere in the South. In the fall, when it was time to pick cotton, huge numbers of black people are arrested in all of the cotton-growing counties. There are surges and arrests in counties in Alabama in the days before, coincidentally, a labor agent from the coal mines in Birmingham is coming to town that day to pick up whichever county convicts are there. Some charges were serious, but more than two-thirds of all state prisoners were convicted under vague charges of burglary and larceny. County prisoners, too, were sent to the mines. For often trivial offenses, they faced the real possibility of death. In some Alabama prison camps, convicts died at a rate of 30 to 40 percent a year. And this, this system is one that I think in many ways needs to be understood as brutal in a social sense, but fiendishly rational in an economic sense. Because where else could one take a black worker and work them literally to death after slavery? And when that worker died, one simply had to go and get another convict. So those were the historians Adam Green, James Grossman, and Khalil Muhammad describing the system of convict leasing in the South. And we have one more clip. And I just wanted to say that, you know, today's system of mass incarceration and in private prisons is kind of an updated form of what they're talking about in terms of convict leasing, uh, where an incarcerated body is worth money to a corporation, just as an enslaved body was worth a sizable sum to enslavers at this country's founding. This is a second clip from Slavery by Another Name with the historian's Adam Green, James Grossman, and Khalil Muhammad speaking. Convict leasing was a source of labor where you could realize the maximum return at a minimum social cost. The feeding, of course, was next to nothing. Uh, health was next to nothing. Convict miners cost as much as 50 to 80% less than free miners and could be worked six days a week. Their presence allowed companies to depress wages, and resist unions. When one could obtain black labor at almost no cost, the profits for that form of business were enormous. In Florida, prisoners extracted gum and resin from tall pines and transformed it into turpentine. In Georgia, they hauled wet clay from riverbanks, molding it into the millions of bricks needed for new buildings and homes. From Texas to Louisiana, convicts forced their way through acres of virgin forest, harvesting timber and building railroads. In all, more than 15,000 prisoners worked in southern industry in 1886. And that number was rising quickly. In many labor camps, as many as a third of male convicts were boys younger than 16. So, Brian, Nicole, and Walter, I just wanted to end by saying that this type of labor program also exists in Minnesota. So that, you know, if George Floyd and so many men who were picked up by police officers like Derek Chauvin wound their ways through the court system, they would wind up in a system that also 
provided labor, free labor. There's an organization called Violence Architecture, and they have a report and website that says through Minnesota's prison work programs, quote, prisoners take on a new form of institutionalized slavery by trading their labor between city government programs. Prisoners build up and support largely white rural and suburban communities, which most of these prisoners are not even from. Their wages are up to $1.50 per hour, and most money gained is forcibly taken away from them. Instead, a large portion of wages are used to fund their own prison systems and work programs, which creates further divisions in the communities of the incarcerated. Walter, this is what makes American capitalism unique. I mean, American capitalism was premised on the enslavement of labor and the enslavement of kidnapped African people, a system of racialized apartheid based on this economic system. Unlike the evolution of capitalism in Europe, say, where wage labor of dispossessed workers or former serfs, people came and sold their labor hour by hour. They received wages in return. Marx called it a system of wage slavery, meaning that the proletariat, the working class, if it could not work, if the capitalists chose not to hire people for whatever reason, maybe there's an economic contraction, they're just not needed. That worker, while not the individual property of an individual capitalist, would be left to basically starve unless they could find some other capitalist who would hire them. So there was a kind of a collective wage slavery. But in America, this capitalism was developed on the basis of chattel slavery, of real, full-out, complete slave labor. And then when the Civil War finally, and to the surprise of certainly the Northern capitalists who led the war on the part of the North, abolished slavery, it didn't really abolish slavery. The 13th Amendment of the Constitution that ended the system of slavery that existed in the United States says, and I'll say the words one more time so everyone understands it, as, as Esther mentioned, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now, why did the 13th Amendment need the clause, except as punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall be duly convicted. Why not just abolish slavery? American capitalism and the American bourgeoisie, the American capitalists, are in fact addicted to slavery. They were addicted to it from the beginning. Their wealth was premised on it. And after the war ended the formal system of slavery, they maintained it in the Constitution of the United States, which everybody says is this document that guards our freedom and our democracy. No, this document actually extends slavery and incentivizes the arrest and the imprisonment of people so that they can continue to be used as slave labor. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Brian. I mean, the rich elite who run the major corporations who control the commanding share of the economy, the elite, the ruling class in the United States, tells this mythology about themselves that they got to their position of extreme wealth and power because they're just smarter than everyone else. They just work harder than everyone else. And they're more innovative or their families were more innovative. But this is the real story. I mean, this is the origin of the wealth 
of the ruling class of this country, of the capitalist class of this country. They didn't get that way because they're smarter than everyone. They got that way because they were simply the most brutal, because they were willing to commit the most horrific crimes in the pursuit of greater and greater wealth. And central to all of that was slavery. I mean, that's the foundation upon which all of the wealth of this country is built. Uh, The enslavement of Africans, the genocide against the Native American people who lived here. This is where U.S. capitalism really comes from. And in a historical sense, you know, it's true that over time, the capitalists in the North came to view the slave-owning class in the South as a break on the expansion of their wealth. But it was a symbiotic relationship. I mean, the Northern factories, Northern industry relied on the raw materials produced by the South. Uh, Some of the biggest insurance corporations that are still in existence today, if you trace back their history, you go back, you know, you follow all the different mergers and acquisitions, you'll find insurance corporations in the early days of the United States whose principal business was insuring enslaved people because they were legally considered property. I mean, this is absolutely at the foundation of the economy even still today. And certainly one of the key reasons is exactly what you said, because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment that allows enslavement to continue if it's a punishment for a crime, if the people being enslaved are prisoners. For instance, forest fires out west, one of the the biggest news stories in the United States around the world, these apocalyptic images of this terrible environmental disaster going on. A lot of the people who are fighting those fires were imprisoned people who are being paid, you know, cents an hour, like a couple cents an hour. I mean, so little that it is still virtually slavery. Esther, I want to just talk about the dimension and the magnitude, which we talked about a little bit, but just to reinforce this, after the end of the Civil War, when the 13th Amendment was passed, the Southern slaveocracy, the plantation owners hated the 13th Amendment, but they created sort of a stand-in, what were called the Black Codes, which would allow for the powers that be that were aligned with the defeated slaveocracy to arrest Black people have trumped up charges, convict people, or convict them on minor charges, or in these fabricated new you know, legal categories under the so-called black codes that would allow the re-enslavement of the arrested person. It's estimated that about 800,000 African-American people between the end of the Civil War or 1870 and the end of this peonage system, which only was brought to its end in 1940 as many as 800,000 people were imprisoned for this purpose. I'm reading something that Brian Wilson, well, he quotes it. He said, in Louisiana, it was illegal. These were according to the Black Codes. In Louisiana, it was illegal for a Black man to preach to Black congregations without special permission and writing from the president of the police. If caught, he could be arrested and fined. If he could not pay the fines, which were unbelievably high, he would be forced to work for an individual or go to jail or prison where he would work until his debt was paid off. If a black person did not have a job, he or she could be arrested and imprisoned on the charge of vagrancy for loitering, and the same thing would happen. Then he writes, and I'll finish with this, the next black code will make you cringe in South Carolina if the parent of a black child was considered vagrant The judicial system allowed the police and or other government agencies to, quote, apprentice, close quote, the child to an employer. 
males could be held until the age of 21 and females until they were 18. The owner, their owner, the person who they had been leased to as child apprentices, had the legal right to inflict punishment on the child for disobedience and to recapture them if they ran away. Again, it's this is the key part of American history. This is what every American needs to know about what America is and what American capitalism is. And frankly, almost no one knows. Right. And when you look at the documentary that I played some clips from, The Slavery by Another Name, there are actually some descendants of these white, I guess some were farm owners, some were landowners, some were heads of corporations that exploited these workers in their businesses. And they told stories about how when they were growing up, their ancestors were lauded as, you know, men who pulled themselves up from nothing and, you know, were fine people, upstanding citizens who worked hard. And that's how they became so wealthy and so rich. And that's why the family had such a status. And then when they learned about the truth, it was really devastating to them. And these were people who were willing to come forward and to talk about it in the documentary. But as we can see, just looking at current events, a lot of people, the former slaveocracy in the South, the people who made money off of enslaved Africans, they're not interested in their the formerly enslaved, you know, rising up and taking any type of political power or economic power or anything. So what exists then is still carry forward to today. Yeah, we'll do a show. We need to do a show on why reparations are an absolute imperative, but we'll do that at another time. Because time is running short, I want to move quickly to our next story. And it's a big story. It's really big. The United States has been at war in Afghanistan since 2001. October 7th, 2001, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. This October 7th will be 20 years, Walter. And the U.S. says they're going to wind the war down. But it looks like the U.S. is actually the demand now of the U.S. on the existing Afghan puppet government is for the Afghan puppet government to agree to a national unity government with the Taliban. So for 20 years, the U.S. has been at war in Afghanistan, the ultimate goal of which now seems to be a government with the Taliban. Yeah, it's such an incredible irony, such a tragic and outrageous irony that this is how it's really ending up because, I mean, so many tens of thousands of Afghans have died as a consequence of this two-decade-long war imposed on the country by the United States. Yeah, so there's some really intense maneuvering going on because towards the end of his administration, Trump, the Trump administration, negotiated a settlement with the Taliban, whereby in return for, uh, you know, a quote unquote reduction in violence and counterterrorism assurances, uh, the United States would withdraw its remaining troops occupying Afghanistan, that the United States would finally end its war in the country. So now the Biden administration has to decide whether or not it wants to stick with the plan. And it's hinting that it might not. But there were some very major developments over the last few days. It started off when an Afghan news site called Tolo News reported that Secretary of State Blinken sent a letter to Afghan President Ashraf Ghani. And it's, you know, formally, it's, you know, friendly, it's making recommendations. But when you think about it for a few seconds, it's clear that what Blinken is really doing 
is seriously threatening Ghani and the Afghan puppet government that was essentially set up by the U.S. occupation. So let me just read a little bit from this letter that Secretary of State Blinken sent to the president of Afghanistan. As you and your country know all too well, disunity on the part of Afghan leaders proved disastrous in the early 1990s and must not be allowed to sabotage the opportunity before us. What happened in the early 1990s? Oh, that's when the Taliban seized control of the country. That's what Blinken is alluding to. If you don't do what we say, if you don't form this transitional government, this national unity government that allows us to essentially withdraw you know, without being completely humiliated, then you're going to end up like the Afghan leadership in the early 1990s, overthrown by force by the Taliban. Uh, Here's something that's even clearer. So this is how the letter concludes. We are considering the full withdrawal of our forces by May 1st as we consider other options. Even with the continuation of financial assistance from the United States to your forces after an American military withdrawal, I am concerned that the security situation will worsen and that the Taliban could make rapid territorial gains. I am making this clear to you so that you understand the urgency of my tone regarding the collective work outlined in this letter. So Blinken is saying, do what we say, make this coalition government, sign this peace agreement, get your act together and hurry up, or else we're going to let you be overthrown by force. Spoken like a true uh, governor general in the old colonial era, Walter. Yeah, it's completely outrageous that an official of the United States government feels the authority to just dictate the terms by which a people thousands and thousands of miles away on completely the opposite side of the planet sets up their system of government. I mean, that was the basic colonial imperial arrogance that led to the invasion of Afghanistan in the first place. And it's the way that the occupation has been conducted the entire time. The Afghan war for the United States was an absolute failure. It was a success in terms of imposing huge amounts of human suffering and misery on the people of Afghanistan. But it's another defeat for the U.S. military. It proves that having the most advanced military hardware, the most advanced equipment, won't necessarily lead to a military victory when the people of the country you are occupying will do anything to evict you. Of course, we also know, and we're for the rest of this month going to be talking on the real story, the Thursday segment of our show about the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The Pope was just in Iraq and visiting the Christian community in Iraq. And it made me remember that the Christian community in Iraq was quite large, very, very significant. And it was more or less sympathetic to the Ba'athist government of Saddam Hussein because that government was secular and was tolerant towards religious minorities. The last time I was in Iraq, which was right before the invasion in 2003, I met with parts of the Christian community in Mosul, a city later destroyed by ISIS and the military operations to evict ISIS. But here you have the Pope in Iraq so sad, really, because the Christian community has been largely crushed in Iraq. Many of its members have fled, fearing ISIS or religious extremism. Anyway, again, the U.S. failed in its military accomplishments in Iraq. It now praises the Pope's visit. The reality is Iraq's Christian community, like Iraqis from all faiths, have suffered so, so much. I want to end this 
show, this episode where we started. I was talking about the failure of Congress to pass the minimum wage. And there were eight Democrats who voted down the minimum wage. And I want to mention some of them because these are the eight Democrats in the U.S. Senate. And the media always calls them, as we said in the beginning, that they're moderates or they're centrists. And I was like, moderate sounds good because the alternative is you're an extremist or you're a, quote, radical extremist. But what makes you a moderate? What makes you reasonable when you yourself are millionaires and you're depriving working class people, millions of them, of a wage necessary to actually live? The net worth of the eight Democrats who voted down the $15 minimum wage. Here they are. Chris Coons, he's worth, quote, $10.13 million. Angus King also voted against the minimum wage. His net worth, $9.49 million. Joe Manchin, the centrist, the moderate from West Virginia, he has $7.62 million in assets. Tom Carper, $5.73 million. Janine Shaheen, $3.82 million. John Tester, $3.67 million. Maggie Hassan, $3.47 million. Kristen Cinema, I don't know what she's worth, but she was the one who made a great demonstration of her desire to make sure millions of low-income, low-wage workers weren't going to get a raise. And of course, I want to talk a little bit about Manchin because he plays this outsized role in the Democratic Party. Not only is Manchin, quote, not a moderate, he's a millionaire extremist. He's worth $7.43 million officially. He's also the father of Heather Bresch. Now, Heather Bresch was the CEO of Mylan, the pharmaceutical company, the company that makes the EpiPen. According to her net worth in 2020, again, I guess Heather would be another moderate. She's worth $31.7 million. That was as of a year ago. As chief executive of Myland Pharmaceuticals, Heather Bresch, Joe Manchin's daughter, made the decision to greatly, you'll all remember this, increase the price of the EpiPen allergy treatment. When she came into the company, the pen was selling for an already exorbitant amount of $100 or so. But as of 2009, the price of that drug used for extreme allergy reactions was raised from $100 to $600. This is Heather Bresch, the daughter of Joe Manchin. Again, the people who are telling minimum wage workers, you don't deserve a raise. And also Manchin made a point of lowering, this was the final end of the negotiations for the stimulus package. He made a point of demanding that the $400 in added weekly relief for unemployment and unemployment benefits, that that number be reduced to 300. Otherwise, he was willing to sink the relief package in the US Senate. These people are multimillionaires. Let's not call them moderate. Let's call them what they are extreme capitalists. They are the people who are causing so much suffering for the working class in the United States. And the idea that people should go to the polls every two or four years to make sure that the Democrats, under the real domination of these so-called moderate millionaires, should be the alternative to the Republicans, that's a fool's errand. That's a march to nowhere. In order for there to be real uh, change in America, for there to be real social and economic justice, 
We have to build a movement independent of the Democrats, independent of the Republicans, a movement that's based on the breadth and strength and militancy of a working class movement. That's how we won unemployment insurance. That's how we won social security. That's how we won Medicare. Anything that has ever happened for the US working class that is something of a reform achievement has been a consequence of those kind of struggles by the people themselves. That's what we're fighting for here on The Socialist Program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 